2 Kings 14 will be our passage. Let me begin by prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so may we be enlightened this morning to see how we should live. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, do you ever feel like you're experiencing deja vu all over again? Deja vu comes from the French word, which means already dreamed. And you've probably all experienced it when you are going through something and you think, man, I feel like this has happened before. And in a minute, when we read this chapter, I'm sure some of you will think, isn't this the chapter we read last week? Another Judean king who starts out well and ends poorly. Another king from Israel who does what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord, like the sins of Jeroboam. And for some, this is an immediate reason when they're reading, personally, their eyes kind of glaze over and the names kind of all muddle together. Or when you get to a sermon like this, you go, oh, I've heard this one before. And yet the problem with that mindset is it fails to grasp that growing in the Lord is not merely a matter of fact acquisition. Rather, to grow in the Lord is to know how to apply these truths to our life accordingly. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, stated in his the beginning of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And what he was getting across is the truth of Scripture, that repentance is not just something you do to become a Christian, it's what we do every day as Christians. It's when we see our sin and we turn to Christ from it. Thus, we read over and over in Scripture of people who don't do well because we're a lot like them. And they're a lot like us. We are people like them who get overly optimistic and proud in our victories and forget that we needed God to have those. Or we're like the people who get overly pessimistic and proud in our defeats, and forget that God can bring the victory. And this morning, we're reminded of God's people, how they live and how we should live in light of them. And the first thing we'll see is Amaziah's faithful victories. So let's read that in the first seven verses. Amaziah's faithful victories. It reads, In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did all the things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. He struck down ten thousand Edomites in the valley of salt, and took Selah by storm, and called it Jachthiel, which is its name to this day. So here we have this new king, King Amaziah, and they go through the formulas, telling us how old they were, how long they reigned, and all of that information. And as 
with many of the kings of Judah, we're told that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet then the author qualifies that commendation in two ways. First, he says, not as faithfully as David, King David did. Now, there are only other two kings of Judah in which they have this comparison to King David. And it's actually a father and son from 1 Kings 15. 1 Kings 15, King Abijam is said to not have done like David did. And because of that, due to his sin, he only reigned three years. But then Abijam's son, King Asa, did do what was right in the eyes of the Lord like David, and he reigned many years. And so by the author comparing him to King David, and then also implicitly the other kings who are compared to King David, he's not being given the greatest commendation. The second qualification is that he failed to remove the high places we read in verse 4. And that's really going to set the stage for the rest of his reign where he'll act unfaithfully. But after that, we're given two strong commendations of Amaziah. The first is in verse 5. For his father was assassinated. You, you can read that in 2 Kings 12. But when he had power, he only got justice on those who committed the murder. Why did he do this? Well, because... That's what God words, God's word told him to do. Deuteronomy 24.16 Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now God gave Israel a system of justice that is just and fair for all. The laws not only protect the ruling class, nor do they only protect the lower classes. Rather, the laws were for all people, showing them and us how to love God and to love each other. Thus, there are laws for how do you protect servants, laws for how to look out for your neighbor, laws for making sure the migrant, the orphan, and the widow were not oppressed, and then also laws saying, and don't pervert justice, just to do them extra good. And in Second Kings 14, we're being shown one of the beauties of God's law, and that is that each person is being held accountable. You know, our society has been moving away from God's word as a foundation for our laws, but we still hold some things and we take them for granted. Even non-Christian scholars have noted that many of our values in the West are rooted in the Christian tradition. The idea of human rights only came from the Christian tradition. Tradition. The problem today is not that people champion rights, but that they do so without the biblical morality attached to them. And God here is giving, showing his wonderful system of justice. And you might think as you hear that only the person who commits the crime should be punished, it's kind of obvious. Why would you punish the dads or the children? Now, that just makes sense. But does it really make sense everywhere? I don't think it does because you may remember last year as the Taliban was rolling through Afghanistan, what did everyone keep saying was the big concern? Well, what's going to happen to all of the men and women who helped our troops? What is the Taliban going to do to them and to their families? And they had that fear because before when the Taliban ruled, way to, how do they keep things down? Well, we're not just going to punish you. We're going to punish your family. We're going to make sure you don't do it. And once they got in power, they again began to do that. Well, you may have read 
some of many of the stories coming out during this war in Ukraine. And I read one where they asked a Russian oligarch, one of these powerful rich people, what do you think of the war in Ukraine? What's your opinion? And he replied, please don't ask me that question. If I give my opinion, it will affect my workers and my colleagues. He can't even share his opinion without just his view causing people, other people, to be punished. And so we see it's not actually that common for only the person who commits the crime to be punished. And that's even true in our own society. What started happening after COVID spiked? Well, sadly, people who were Chinese and living in the U.S. started having people attack them. They didn't have anything to do with what happened in China. And yet people want to take out justice, more like vengeance, on anyone and everyone. And so here, the fact that King Amaziah shows restraint and doesn't just keep pouring out vengeance shows his loyalty to God's word, his willingness to have his life guided by scripture rather than the natural impulses of his heart. And that is commending him to us. The second commendable action is in verse 7, when he went to Edom. And you have to really know the story behind it, which Keith read for us earlier, 2 Kings 25, because when they went to Edom, Amaziah, as a good king, assessed, what do we need to win? What do they have? And he says, we don't have enough troops. So he went to Israel and told the king of Israel, if I give you 7,500 pounds of silver, will you loan me 100,000 soldiers? And he said, yes. And so now they thought, we can win. And then a prophet came, came, tells us in 2 Chronicles 25, and told King Amaziah, well, you should not take these Israelites with you. You need to trust the Lord to give you the victory with what he has provided. And Amaziah then replied, well, what am I supposed to do with these 100,000 soldiers I already paid for? And the prophet told him, God can provide for that money if you need it. God will provide, just trust him. And what did Amaziah do? He sent the soldiers back. I mean, what an amount of trust in God to go, I've assessed this situation and I need this. God says, I don't need this. I'm going to trust God. And Amaziah is being held up as a man who is following God. He's very admirable in these two situations. And each of us have Amaziah-like decisions. Of course, they're not as momentous. We're not governing 100,000 troops. However, each of us has decisions that are revealing, are we trusting the Lord in this situation or not? Are we going to follow His word in this situation or not? And that's why every one of us is going to give an account. The flip side of not being held punished, being able to be punished for other people's sins is also that each one of us is accountable for our actions. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame society. Each one of us must face the Lord on our own. That's why when you read about John the Baptist, how did he begin his ministry? He went in the wilderness and he told all of them, you need to repent. You know, they were all shocked. We're Israelites. We don't need to repent. I mean, Abraham's our father. And yet he said to every single one of them, it doesn't matter that you had great ancestry. It doesn't matter that Abraham is your father. Unless you repent, you will not be saved. And each one of us, every day, we don't fully love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
We don't fully love our neighbor as ourselves. But God in his mercy each day says you can repent. You can confess and turn and I abundantly pardon and I forgive. As Luther said, we should be living lifestyles of repentance. So have you personally turned and repented? Not do your parents love God. Not have family members trusted in Christ and then were baptized. But have you turned to Christ in faith and repented of your sins? And the amazing so is if so, on the day of judgment, Jesus will be there and he'll look at you and he'll say, this person is guilty, but I paid for their sins. Let this one into our kingdom. Each one who repents, he forgives and allows us to be welcomed into his eternal throne. Now, the reality, sadly, is many people make such a profession with their lips, especially when they're young, but then as they get old, they begin to go away. And sadly, we see such an example in Amaziah, because though he had these wonderful things at the beginning, we see next, in the next few verses, that he will have some faithless defeats. If you have a bulletin, this is the second point. Amaziah's faithless deceit defeats in verses 8 through 22. So let's read those verses. 2 Kings 14, beginning in verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, A thistle in Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You indeed have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash king of Israel went up. And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his home. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel and Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fed to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Ella and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. So the other part of the story in Second Chronicles 25 is that when Amaziah sent these Israelite soldiers home, 
They were quite angry. You know, their king got paid, but the main way they got payment was, what do we take from the enemy? A great incentive to win the battle is, your payment is how much you can take, and now they're being sent home. So what do these Israelite soldiers do? Well, on their way home, they attacked Judean towns. Basically, they said, well, we're going to get the loot we're promised. And so they take from their relatives. So along with that, we read in 2 Chronicles 25 that after Amaziah defeated Edom, he took the gods of the Edomites and he began to worship them. Now, this is the folly of sin. The very gods that were just impotent to stop him, he now turns to as though somehow they are going to help. And then a prophet, again, whether the same one who warned him earlier, we're not told. A prophet rebuked Amaziah. It says, though, in 2 Chronicles 25, the king Amaziah said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop! Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you've done this and not listened to my counsel. You know, tragically, just a short time before this, Amaziah had been willing to trust God and send the Israelite troops back. And yet now, he won't even let the prophet speak. You know, here, his idolatry has made him hard-hearted. And so what does he do? Well, he then, in his hard-heartedness, wants to go attack Israel. The Lord incites him to do this, so he'll lose. It's no sneak attack, though. He sends messengers, delegates, hey, I want to meet you face to face. And we don't read many good things about King Jehoash of Israel, but at this time, he's gracious. He basically replies, look, you're dumb. And he gives this little illustration. You remember what a thorn bush looks like? And you remember those in the temple there in Jerusalem, those mighty cedars of Lebanon that are all throughout the temple? Well, you're that thorn bush. And what happens? A little beast goes walking through the forest and stomps it down. And that's what I'm going to do to you, Amaziah, if you keep doing this. You've just gotten proud. Yes, you beat Edom. Yes, you didn't use my soldiers, but you're not going to beat me. Just stay home. You're not going to win. But Amaziah's heart is so proud, he goes and he gets exactly what he was told he would get. He's a general custer. So proud of himself that he won't listen to the warnings and he has a total defeat in battle. Not just a total defeat, but total humiliation. In verse 13, we're told that he's captured. You know, oftentimes people lose battles, but then they retreat. They go home. Not Amaziah. He's captured the first king of Judah to have this infamy. Second, They lost so badly that the Israelites can then come in and take over Jerusalem and do whatever they want. They knock out 600 feet of the wall. That's two football fields in length. Their defenses are gone. Not only that, but he comes, Jehoash, king of Israel, comes, takes all the gold, silver, all the valuable things from the king's house and from God's house, the temple. And then... To add insult to injury, Jehoash takes hostages back with him. Judah is so defeated, they can't stop him from doing this. And as well, this will keep them from ever returning an attack, because as soon as they attack, Israel just put those hostages to death. Thus, militarily, economically, 
religiously, Amaziah and Judah stand totally humiliated. They're now defenseless. They're penniless. And now their family members are in a prison to the north. I don't know when people started doing political polling, but if they polled Jerusalem, what are your thoughts of Amaziah's leadership? It would be in the single digits. A big fat 0% are approving of Amaziah and his leadership. And this total domination by Jehoash is even seen in the summary. I don't know if you notice, this is a little bit of a fine detail, but if you go back to chapter 13, 12 through 14, it summarizes the king of Israel's end of his life. And yet here it's repeated. It's not that the author's are so clumsy they didn't realize, oh, we put the same summary twice. Whoa, forgot about that. They're pointing that Amaziah's whole life is summed up in this king who defeated him. As well, notice verse 17. It says, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash. It didn't say he reigned 15 years. From all the evidence, it appears that actually what happened is the people made Amaziah allow his son Azariah to be a co-regent with him, with his son Azariah actually having all the power. Thus, when Amaziah is later assassinated, Azariah doesn't even go and defend him. As well, notice verse 21, all the people of Judah want Azariah to be their king. He's not sitting in 0% approval, he's 100%. Everyone wants him to be king. And to one, add one final insult to Amaziah, we read in verse 22 that his son built Elath and restored it to Judah. Now that may not seem like much, except Elath is a town in the midst of Edom. So the one, well the second, big thing that Amaziah did well, he went and defeated Edom. He actually wasn't even able to finish the job. He couldn't enjoy what he did because his pride and his idolatry so quickly turned him to attack Israel that he wasn't even able to do in Edom what he wanted. His son had to finish it for him. I wonder if any of you have ever watched a high school cross-country race. If you have, you'll know, or run it yourself, you'll know that after the first hundred feet, whoever is in front is most likely not going to be at the front at the end. At that age, they have not yet learned how fast I begin needs to be how fast I'm going almost the whole way through. And the pace they set for themselves is too fast. You see, the problem is we often don't persevere. We don't keep going. And the New Testament over and over refers to our spiritual life as a walk, a race, a journey, one that we have to run all the way to the finish line. You're having a good beginning doesn't mean you'll have a strong finish. That's why the New Testament gives us warnings, such as Hebrews 10.36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Or Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, what was it that got Amaziah starting out so well and then faltering? It was his stubborn idolatry that would not listen to rebuke 
from God's Word? How do we, how do I respond when someone confronts us? Often we dodge the responsibility in several ways. We may rationalize, well, you don't know how tired I was. Well, if if you knew my family growing up, then you'd understand. Or this is just who I am. Sometimes we try to elude their confrontation by appealing to humanity. Well, come on, no one's perfect. Come on, lighten up. It's not like I'm a murderer or something. There's the worst people in the world. This isn't a big deal. Other times we even hide behind God. Well, you can't judge me. God's going to forgive me. Probably most often we just avoid their words by attacking them right back. Well, who are you? I know what you've done. You don't have any right to talk to me about this. And yet the point is, not that we should listen to everyone, because sometimes people confront us on the wrong things, and sometimes they're wrong on what God says how we should live. But the point is that we should heed Proverbs 27, 5-6. through 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Most of y'all know we play soccer and we help out there some. And last week, I was my turn to help out, so I was sitting in the office, and a young referee walked in and sat down, and we were talking to him. And then the head of referees said to him, um, did you know your socks are inside out? And he looks down and he goes, they are? I've been wearing this like for weeks. And the head of referees said, well, I only tell you because I love you. Everyone else just laughs behind your back. And it's true. If you love someone... You don't let them walk around with that booger dangling down. Or you don't let them walk around with something hanging off their body. You love them. You go, well, they might be annoyed that I tell them. But, hey, you should really fix that before you go out in public. You don't want to be embarrassed. How much more if we see something that's ruining the most important thing in their life, their relationship with God, do we say, you may not take this well, but I want you to know that this is wrong in your life. I want you to know that I love you. Now, of course, we need to do this in the right way, in the right time and all that. But how do we receive that? Do we heed what they say? Now, they might be wrong in 90% of their assessment. They may misunderstand our motives. They may misunderstand the situation. But we should be wise enough to listen to the 10%. And on that 10% say, thank you for bringing this to my attention Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, I'm not perfect at this, but I hope, parents, that all of you have said to your child, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You know, I I don't know where this idea of leadership comes, but sometimes people have this idea of leadership. Well, I can never mess up in front of my children or my employees or my co-workers. I got to maintain a Christian witness. But... Our Christian witness is not that we are wonderful. Our Christian witness is that we're sinners who are forgiven. And so how much more wonderful is it when you're honest with your children or your co-workers or your boss? Because we've all messed up and say, I'm so sorry. In that meeting, I was really, I just was rude to you. Would you forgive me? And you know what they're going to do? They're probably going to go, thanks. Most people don't ever come apologize. And then they might even say, why would you do that? Well, because I've been forgiven by God. 
And I know that he knows everything I've done already, so I can just be open and honest when I screw up. He's forgiven me, so I can accept that I still screw up all the time. I'm a person who's continually repenting. But all of this is really stemming from the fact that Amaziah, who started so strong, he ended so poorly because he wouldn't listen. He had that stubborn, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. And a strong start does not guarantee a strong finish. And Amaziah would have finished well if he would have listened and heeded the rebuke from God's word through his prophet. But now we transition to a Another story, but now we shift. We've been focusing on Judah, but the chapter ends by looking at the nation of Israel, which by all accounts is really improving. But as we'll see, it's not because of their goodness, but rather all because of God's grace and mercy. Let's read about it. Second Kings 14, 23 to the end, verse 23 through 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said he wouldn't blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Amath to Judah and Israel. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the king of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So we have now here the third descendant of King Jehu. And you may remember 2 Kings 10.30. God promised Jehu four descendants. So we know this king's going to make it through. At least one more will come after him from the line of Jehu. And yet, though they have this promise from God that they'll reign, they don't seek to honor God with their life. Thus they name their son Jeroboam. Now, people normally have reasons for why they give their children the names they give them. And perhaps they give that child a unique name because they want their child to stand out. Or perhaps, oh, that relative is so meaningful, or that person is so, such a model of what my children to be like, so I name them after them. And on the flip side, you probably had other children you grew up with, or a relative, or a co-worker, and you go, I'm never naming my kid that name. I don't want to remember them at all. Well, Jeroboam should be that name for Israel. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel when the nation split, and he's the one who led them to the false worship. The false worship that has led to all of their problems, that all the prophets keep telling them about. And yet the one person, or one of the many, Ahab wouldn't have been a hot name either, one of the many names they shouldn't pick, that's what they pick. And so what does Jeroboam do? Well, he lives after his namesake. He does Evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what do we expect next? Judgment's coming. And yet we read the most shocking verses. Because then in verse 25, we begin to read how Jeroboam restores the borders of Israel. He reigns 41 years, the longest reign of a northern king. 
not just any restoration. He restores from Lebo Hamath, which is the farthest north Solomon ever achieved, all the way down to the Sea of Ereba, which is the farthest south Solomon ever achieved. So Jeroboam restores these borders. But why does he do it? Well, it's not his military strategy, nor he didn't have great state-of-the-art weapons. Look at verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Laboamoth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. And that is the same Jonah of the Nineveh fish-swallowing type. Now, some may snidely comment, well, come on, we know history. At this time, Assyria was all fighting countries on their north and south. Syria is weak. Judah's clearly in trouble. They can't even keep their wall up. And Egypt's firing. That's why they came to power. I mean, didn't have anything to do with God blessing them. And yet, while all that is true, those are the conditions that allowed Israel to rise, not the cause. The cause of them growing, them flourishing, is God's blessing due to the promise through Jonah the prophet. But that still begs the question, why would God allow Jeroboam to expand geographically, militarily, economically, when he's still worshiping false gods? Doesn't he deserve punishment? Yes, he does. But the Bible tells us the most amazing word, grace, undeserved favor. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 26, God saw their affliction was bitter. God knows they deserve justice, but He wants to show mercy and grace. Even verse 27 makes clear, they don't deserve this. God could blot them out. And yet, tragically, as we'll see next week, Israel won't learn from God's punishments in prior kings, and they won't learn from His mercy and grace now. You can go and read the prophecy of Amos, which was written at this time and giving warning after warning. You see, here God is showing them kindness after kindness. Maybe kindness will lead them to repentance, and it won't. Paul writes it this way, Romans 2, 4 and 5, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I think Dale Davis summarizes what's happening best here, happening here, the best. He writes, One senses that Israel might be on the verge of being wiped out, but that God is still loath to take them there. You know, this is the last successful king of Israel. They will now have five kings in a short period of time. They'll then be conquered and go into exile. This is their last hope. Will they respond to God's punishments? No. Will they respond to God's blessings? Tragically, we see the answer is also no. But Jeroboam is just another reminder that we can't judge by the outside what is going on on the inside. Or to put it another way, 
visible success, whether that's with a church or your marriage or your finances or your business, is not a sign of God's approval. As one person said it well, it might be a sign of God's compassion, not his commendation. And yet, we often do draw these connections. Oh, someone's visibly doing well. God must be really happy with them. Oh, they're really suffering. God must be angry with them. Well, if you read the book of Job, you know that latter is not true. Suffering is not a sign that God is angry with you. And here we're being shown the opposite. Blessing, success, does not mean God is pleased with you. Thus, whether it's Amaziah of Judah who's floundering, or Jeroboam of Israel who's flourishing, each of them needs to repent. Jesus explains this really well in Luke 13. So let's turn there and we'll wrap up by looking at just a few verses in Luke 13, the first five verses. Luke 13 is in this context where right before this, Jesus had called them hypocrites. They didn't really care for this. They didn't want to be seen as people who weren't serving God. So what do they do? Well, they do exactly what we mentioned people do earlier. They try and point the finger at, well, what about these other people? And so Luke 13, there were some present, people who just heard, you're hypocrites, at that very time, who told him, well, what about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? We go, yeah, you're right, Jesus. There's some wicked people, those Galileans. Yep, they must be some pretty bad dudes that they would get killed while they're trying to worship God. But what is Jesus saying? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus turns it back around and says, no, the issue is you need to focus on you. Don't be comparing yourself to others. And then they give another example. Okay, well, what about, or Jesus brings up another example, sorry, because people might say, well, yeah, that was a human agent, but sometimes God's punishing people. When he brings disaster on a nation, it must be because he's judging them. So he brings up this incident, this tower in this town called Siloam, which is near Jerusalem. Verse 4, it says, Or these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And by implication, Jesus is showing, yes, they think that. Well, they think if something bad has happened, then God's punishing them. Oh, that person has cancer? God must see they're doing something wicked in their life. Maybe not. We don't know. But how does Jesus end? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We can't look at success and say that God is blessing it. We can't look at suffering and say God is punishing them. Rather, we each must search and come before the Lord. Are we honoring Him? Randy Alcorn writes, If wealth is a dependable sign of God's approval and lack of wealth shows His disapproval, then Jesus and Paul were on God's blacklist, and drug dealers and embezzlers are the apple of his eye. And yet, clearly, that is wrong. And so the case before us, whether we are Amaziah and floundering, or Jeroboam and we're flourishing, have we come before the Lord, confessed our sins, 
and repented. Not just, oh yeah, I did that when I was 10 years old. I took care of that. But today, are we living lives that are trying to seek the Lord while He may be found? Abandoning what is promising life and finding it only from Him. For as Jesus tells you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may you humble us. We need to hear your word. We need to repent. And may we realize that's not a harsh word. That's your loving extension to us, offering us forgiveness and restoration. May we know the joy of repentance and being restored to you. Lord, may all in here not just be hearers, but be doers of these words. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.